So have you ever been defeated? Ever been defeated? Ever, ever lost at something? When I was in the seventh grade, I made it through the ranks to the district spelling bee. Yeah, it's feeling pretty good. All the way in the district. And the district's a little bigger than the previous ones that I had done, so a little more pressure. I was really starting to feel the pressure, too. Yeah. I didn't wear my dry idea that day. I know you're never supposed to, but I, I let them see me sweat. It just, it just happened. Yeah, the, the lights on the stage were just bright. Felt like they were running off Tabasco sauce. It was just hot in there. I felt hotter than a twice microwave hot pocket. I was just sweating. I was nervous. Everything was falling apart in my mind. And then it came my turn to do the, the next word. I think I was either in round two or round three. And the word I was asked to spell was squalid. Squalid. And then they repeated the word, and then they used it in a sentence. And I think it was something like squalid. You know, the man refused to stay in the squalid apartment. So I said squalid. S-Q-U-A-L-I-D. Squalid. And the lady said, no, I'm sorry, that is not correct. Now, my face had to look flabbergastedly kerfuffled because I'm thinking, wait a minute, I, I, I said that word right. Said it right, I spelled it right, what in the world's going on? But, but I was done, single elimination, so you, you miss one word, you're out. So I had to creep down off the stage and go sit down next to my mom in the audience and I'm sitting out there pouting and, and when everything was over, I, I turned to my mom and I said, I spelled, I spelled it right. And I went up to the supervisor and I was like, I, I, I spelled my word right, but, but nobody would listen to me. But I kept saying, hey, I, I spelled my word correctly. I kept kindly protesting that I spelled my word correctly. And I kept protesting until, well, technically I'm, I'm still protesting, all right? I'm still protesting that I spelled that word correctly. On the way home, my mom said, well, um, she goes, I, I think you just misheard she said because the the word that that they said was was squalor and i said no they said squalor she goes no they, they said squalor now look i hate conspiracy theories with a passion okay but you know squalor and squalid they basically mean the same thing they have the same definition so I, don't know, I, I think there was something off there but but i'm you know look i'm I'm trying, you know. I mean, I, I, at this point, I'm starting to think I'm never going to get credit for spelling that word correctly, all right? And, and I really, I'm thinking I've lost all of my spelling bee eligibility. I, I, think, I think I'm done. But I really am trying to deal with that defeat. I, I really am. I really am. You know, sometimes we have defeat in life that is hard to deal with. It's, it's not easy to work through. We are beat down, crushed, if you will, with despair and, and frustration or fear or anger or worry. We, we're so stressed out. We're so overwhelmed that we just, we can't think. You ever been there? Just, you just can't think. There's just too much going on. Well, for moments like that, is there any help? I mean, is there, an, is there just like maybe an ounce of hope when there's a ton of discouragement? Well, there is. There is help and there is hope. And since it's Labor Day weekend, we'll, we'll tag it a little bit by saying this. The, the best help that you can have for the most difficult defeats in life, the best hope 
that you can have for the most difficult defeats in life comes with something that you need to work at. So what is it that we need to work at? Let's see if we can find out. Lamentations chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth. Lamentations is a book of poems. This is the second poem. And it's written as a reflection of the destruction of Jerusalem and really the unraveling of the entire nation around 586 B.C. And here in in this part, we're hearing from the prophet, which we believe most likely was Jeremiah. And the prophet now is, is giving us his reflection, his personal reflection as he looks on the defeat that Jerusalem has experienced. And here's this man's man prophet, and he says, I've been weeping. I have been weeping over the defeat of the city and the nation. And he says that that his emotions and his his attitude, they are completely rattled. He, He just he can't find his bearing. And then he gives this description of like his organs have been poured out on the ground. This language, this poetic language, it's as if he's saying, look, this situation, this defeat, it's making me physically, spiritually, and emotionally sick. It's, it's weighing on him, everything that had happened. You know, across our country and across the world right now, there, there are lots of people who are ticked off and angry. And there's lots of people who are freaked out and afraid. And there's like 43 people in the middle that aren't either one, right? You know? It's like we're, we're all over the place in the spectrum of, of emotions and attitudes. But in this poem, after devastation, not confusion, not back and forth, but, but devastation, destruction, defeat, there's no fear and there's no anger. It's an attitude of humble lamenting. To lament is is good and right and and desperate, healthy prayer. It's it's a type of praying that that is desperate in its desire to have more of God. Mark Vrogop, he describes lamenting as we've said before, that it's, it's us turning to God. It's us complaining to God. It's us asking God. And then it's us trusting God. So, when's the last time that you lamented? When was the the last time that you were physically or emotionally or spiritually sick over your sin? Not the sin of your spouse or your kids or your grandkids or somebody you work or go to school with or that politician you didn't vote for. when, When was the last time that you lamented over your sin, over how you turn from God. You know why Jerusalem was defeated? You know why the nation unraveled? Because God's people refused to lament. They refused to admit or acknowledge or confess or deal with their own sin. It wasn't just the the liberal nut jobs. It wasn't just the conservative bullies. It was the people of God that refused to turn to God. They ignored God. 
For decades, they were very religious, but they were not repentant. They sang songs about God. They talked about God. They read books about God. They had bumper stickers and T-shirts and, and magnets about God. They had family values about God, but they were not actually following God. And how do we know? Well, part of what it means to follow God is you repent, and you keep on repenting. Part of what it means to be a believer and a follower of Jesus is that repentance is part of your life. Your spouse hears you repent. Your kids hear you repent. The people you work with and go to church with, they hear repentance in your life. And again, the Bible's description of repentance is not the, the every now and then apology. Repentance in the Bible is a turning away from sin and a turning to God. So are you lamenting and are you repenting? Are those things that are a part of who you are? Someone said that when we repent, we start seeing God in this way. Great, glorious, and desirable. We start seeing when we're repenting, we are seeing God as great, glorious, and desirable. And on the other side of that coin, they say we begin to look at our sin with this as diminished, ugly, and repulsive. We begin to look at, at our sin against God, our sin against others, as diminished, ugly, and repulsive. So, just take a moment. Let's look back over our week. Let's look back over how we talked to our spouses, our kids, our families, our friends, our neighbors, how we interacted with people at work or school, what we did on social media. And if we look back just over you know, the last seven days, what do we see? Do we see that, that the way we talked and the way we thought, the way we acted, our, our attitudes reflected the desirable glory of God or did we look a lot more like the diminished glory of our own opinions? What stands out the most when we just take a, a casual glance at the past week? The city, the nation, the people of God they were defeated because they refuse to lament and they refuse to repent. They refuse to quit living their lives by the diminished glory of their own opinions, especially their casual opinion about their own sin. And they were defeated. Now, what kind of defeat are we talking about? What, what kind of defeat is causing the prophet to say, my organs fell out on the ground. All of this is making me so sick. Listen to verse 11. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, when little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. This was not a, a defeat that caused you know, gas prices to climb or, or created some kind of shortage of toilet paper. No, this defeat that they experienced involved immediate and extreme poverty for entire families and an entire city. It wasn't like a few people were affected. You know, Earl and I were talking this morning about you know, about tornadoes and how a tornado can come through a community as, as he experienced and growing up and, and that tornado will hit down in a neighborhood and it'll skip over a house. 
You know, there'll be, there'll be ten houses and it'll hit two and, and it'll leave eight alone. That's not what happened here. No, no houses were spared. All of the people were devastated. They were all thrown into some type of chaos. And when we look at this moment in history and we compare it to today, there is no comparison. We may feel like everything is going to hell in a handbasket, but there is absolutely no comparison of what we experience today as people compared to what these people experienced 2,600 years ago. And the prophet addresses that, verse 13. How shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Of of all the the worldwide pandemic and political and and social and, and financial and political turmoil, all the things that we're experiencing, none of those things compared to what they experience. We, at best, are generally speaking, being inconvenienced for the things that are happening. These people became refugees, the entire nation, all of the people. It was destruction. It was defeat. Such a defeat that he says to the people, who can heal you? It's as if he's saying, there's no hope for you people. There's no hope at all. There's nothing that's ever going to help. Ever felt like that? Ever had a moment where you're like, man, there's just nobody that can help. There's nothing that can help. I'm, I'm not going to be healed of this. Look, I want you to know no matter what difficulty you're facing today, no matter what stress or, or strain may be in your life, no matter how much chaos is overwhelming you at work, at school, at home, with your family, your friends, or whatever else, there is always hope to be found. Where? Simon Peter was writing to some folks who were experiencing a great deal of suffering and they were confused about what was happening in the world. And he wanted to encourage them that knowing Jesus and the truth about Jesus was a big deal. So this is what he wrote in 1 Peter 2, 24. And he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Jesus did not die for the penalty of his sin. He died for the penalty of my sin and your sin. So the next time you you feel like that, that you're being wronged in some way, that some political or social right of yours is in jeopardy, remember that Jesus, who is perfectly innocent, substituted himself for the penalty of my sin and your sin. Jesus bore your sin in his own body so that you could be rescued from the just condemnation and damnation of sin. There is great hope to be found in this fact. Jesus bore your sins. And why did he do that? Peter continues, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. One of the most profound benefits and and we could say demands of salvation is that we should hate our sin, that we should repent of our sin, that we should lament of our sin, and that instead we should live out and live in the beauty of what it means to be right with God. 
There is astounding hope in being right with God. Being right with God changes everything. Why? Peter continues, For by his wounds you were healed. I've shared with you before, I'll, I'll never forget standing over my friend Elton in the grassy area between two of his chicken houses as, as he had just been involved in an accident. His, his legs were mangled from the knees down. Paramedics were surrounding him, and, and Elton asked me to stand over him, grab the, truck from, grab the Bible from his truck, and just read Scripture. And I remember in that moment when I read the words about Jesus healing us, Elton looked up at me and said, Hey, Dal, read that again. I want to hear again that by his wounds I am healed. Now, Elton was no fool. He knew his legs were gone. He knew his life was hanging in the balance in that moment, just from blood loss. But there was not a hint of anger or fear or worry or anything else. He very calmly said, hey, read that to me again. Why? Because Elton knew That if on that day he was to stand before God with no legs to stand on, he knew he was already healed. To be healed by Jesus is astounding. And there is great hope and great help in being healed by the wounds of Jesus. There is no therapy, there's no surgery, there's no medicine for the full and final penalty of sin. There is nothing you can do to deal with the terminal disease of sin. There is only one remedy, and that remedy is Jesus, and he bore your own sin in his own body so that you could be rescued from sin and death, so that you could be permanently healed regardless of what happens to you, permanently healed. There's always healing in Jesus. Therefore, there is always hope. So when you're in that moment, you're like, there's no hope. (laughs) There's no healing. There's, There's no help. There is always healing in Jesus. Therefore, there is always hope. But here's the confusing thing. The people ignored the healing and the help of God. They, they, they ignored God. They were obsessed with other things. Doesn't sound like us at all, does it? Listen to what they were obsessed with. Verse 14. Your prophets has, have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity. But they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. It, it's so sad that That all they had to do was say, hey, you're sinful. You need to repent and lament, and and God will heal you. But they wouldn't say that. They gave them different visions. They gave them different messages. You see, there was a lot of preaching going on in that days, and and those days, and, and they were listening to the preaching, but the people would only listen to the preaching that did not ask them to change. They didn't want to hear sermons and Bible studies about changing. They just wanted to hear something good from the Bible. 
Let's, let's just study a book of the Bible. Let, let's learn about this prophet. I just want to learn some information, but I don't want to hear anything about changing. That's, that's what they were listening to. So what they did was they chose the preachers and, and the pastors and the politicians and the professors and the philosophers and the pundits that would match up with their diminished glory of their own opinions. That's what they did. They were always trying to find the people that would match up with their opinion on things, and that's who they listened to first and most. There's always been false and foolish visions around Christianity. Until Jesus returns, there will always be false and foolish visions around Christianity. But the visionary message of Jesus has never changed. Very simply, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message is, has never gone anywhere. One day Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, be careful how you hear. Be careful how you listen. I think the King James says, give heed to how you hear. So how are you listening? How are you hearing these days? What, what visions are you paying attention to? Who are those voices that you're listening to first and most in the midst of all this chaos that we're living in these days? We have religious and medical and political visions screaming at us, screaming at us from, from every angle that we look at. So who are you listening to the most? Because you do need to be careful. Because you know what? It's easy for any of us to be misled. It's easy. There's so much information out today that, that it's easy to be misled. But the message of Jesus was not misleading. The message of hope and healing from Jesus was not misleading. It was simple and it was clear. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is, is near. So do people who are not Christians, do non-Christians need to repent and turn to Jesus? Yes. Do Christians need to repent and turn to Jesus? Yes. Christians, we, we should be repenting and turning to Jesus over and over again all day, every day. It should be part of who we are. But the people of God refused to repent. They refused to lament. They ignored God, and now they're having to deal with the consequences. What kind of consequences? Verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said, the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? All your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we waited, we have reached it, and we have seen it. The great and strong and mighty Jerusalem fell. It was defeated. And worse than that, in the rubble is the enemy mocking the people with their victory. Right? I mean, we, we see this, especially now that college football is back around, right? I mean, when the team loses, the other team's in the middle of the field. And, I mean, it's just like it, they're mocking. They're mocking that they lost. They're mocking that they were defeated. And why did all of that happen? Because God's people refused to turn to God. They refused to complain to God. They refused to ask God. They refused to trust God. And so all of these consequences came upon them. And where did they come from? 
Verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. You know what one of the highest honors in the world is? An, an honor that, that everyone agrees on. An honor that, that atheists and Christians agree on. An honor that, that liberals and conservatives agree on. An honor that, that Americans and Russians agree on. An honor that Duke's people and Hellman's people, they, they agree on. You know, we, anybody and everybody, everybody agrees on this one thing, and, and I'll put it in two forms, a male and female version. It goes something like this. Well, he's a man of his word. Well, she keeps the promises she makes. See, we, we all, everyone honors that. Everyone loves someone who keeps their word. Everyone loves someone who's dependable. We love someone who, who keeps their promises. When they say they're going to do something, they do it. We love that. In fact, we really demand it. But if we're honest, we tend to despise it in God. More often than not, we don't want God to keep his word. We get to those places in the Bible where, where judgment is heavy, where God's keeping his word through judgment. We're like, ah, that makes me uncomfortable. We, we don't like it. And, and many people, Christian and non-Christian, by the lives that they're living, they're like, I kind of secretly hope God doesn't keep his word. I kind of I want to get away with this. I, I hope he doesn't follow through. And then there's other people. They, they will basically deny the existence of God if they hear any notion that God is a God who keeps his word through judgment. Why did Jerusalem fall? Why was the church sanctuary destroyed? As we learn from chapter 1, by God. Why were the church-going folks now refugees? Because God kept his word. And God keeps his word. And if God didn't keep his word, there'd be no hope. If God didn't keep his word, there would be no hope. Somebody put it this way. The Bible tells us that the God of love is also a God of judgment who will put all things in the world to rights in the end. In other words, it, it places we don't like to talk about at Labor Day picnics. We want God to keep his word. We need God to keep his word. Because if God doesn't keep his word, then evil gets the last word. And if God doesn't keep his word, then we, in our sins, die an everlasting death. Horror and terror that never ends. We want God to keep his word. We need God to keep his word. For more than 40 years, the people heard, this is what you need to do. There are consequences. God's going to keep his word, so, so come on, let's do this. But they refused. They, they refused, and God kept his word. But it didn't have to be that way. It didn't. See, the other side of the, the coin of God's word was full of grace and mercy and love and peace and hope and help, but they had nothing to do with it. 
And all of that help, all of that hope was found in God. But they were thinking that their help was going to be found in their arrogant religious obedience. They felt like that, that their help and their hope might even be found in their arrogant, rebellious sin. They, they were just convinced that they could do whatever. No big deal. Hey, once saved, always saved, so it doesn't matter how I live. But the consequences were real. And the consequences came. And God kept his word. But all they had to do was turn to God. And they would have all the help and all the hope that they needed in God and in God alone. So we might mentally cringe when we get to these hard passages in the Bible where, where judgment comes. Throughout Lamentations, there's some hard passages to read through. So we might cringe, but Jerusalem didn't cringe. The people who were actually destroyed and devastated and defeated, they didn't cringe. You see, the prophet is about to call them back to something that they already knew. See, they were in this moment this is so strange, where God was actually fighting against them instead of fighting for them, right? I mean, this is strange. What's happening? And even in that moment, though, the prophet is going to call them to something that they know they need to do, something that they need to work on again. And what was it? Listen to verse 18. Their heart cried out to the Lord. They knew they needed to cry out to God. You know, there's always that, that kid at school or that older brother or maybe older sister or cousin or some punk somewhere that'll, that'll hold you down when you're a little kid and keep pulling your fingers back or hurting you in some way until you scream, Uncle. That, that's not what's happening here. The people aren't crying out to God to say, Hey, stop hurting us. Stop all this. No, something completely different was happening. They were crying out to God in their suffering because it took their suffering, it took the darkness for them to remember the light. It took their suffering to remind their hearts, oh yeah, we're supposed to be turning to God in good times and bad times, when we win and when we lose, when we're comfortable or when we're in trouble when it's paradise or when it's a pandemic. It doesn't matter any time and all the time the people of God are supposed to turn to God. Turn to God, complain to God, ask God, and trust God all the time, especially in the hard times. Chelsea Sobolik is a policy director in Washington, D.C. She regularly advocates policy to Congress and to the administration. A few years ago, she was writing an article, and she kind of listed out all the, the troubles that she had in life. This was her list. A broken body, a rebellious sister, an unsaved brother, disease that has forever changed my family, and the daily difficulties of my own sinful nature. And then she said this. Recently, as I rehearsed my troubles and asked the question, How long, O Lord? I was faced with a decision. Would I choose to listen to my heart, my emotions, and the pain, or would I choose to press in and trust in God's ultimate faithfulness, goodness, and sovereignty? 
What are you choosing these days? Maybe I can reword that to say this. When I'm defeated, am I going to cry out to God? Am I going to turn to God, to, to complain to God, to ask God, to trust God? Is that what I'm going to do? Or when I'm defeated, am I just going to sit in the bitterness of my defeat? Am I going to sit in the, the pride or the arrogance of my defeat? Am I going to sit in the fear of my defeat? What are you choosing these days? Where are we in our choices? What are we listening to? How are we responding? Are we lamenting? Are we repenting? Chelsea went on to reference a thought from Charles Spurgeon that goes like this. The worldling say the non-Christian maybe, the worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses God when he smites him. The Christian blesses God when everything's terrible and devastating and defeating. Why? This is what Spurgeon says. Because the Christian believes God to be too wise to err, too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour, and believes that all is well. Now, that sounds crazy, <laughs> right? I mean, look at all that's happening around us right now. Who would have the audacity to say, all is well. All is well. Who would have the audacity to say that? Here's who would have the audacity. The person who's been healed by the wounds of Jesus. The person who has discovered the healing power of defeat. Because Jesus bore our sins in his own body to defeat the power of sin and death so that we could be healed. My friend Elton, he's been with Jesus for a number of years now, but he was healed a long time ago. And now he's fully healed forever. Friend, if your soul has been healed by the wounds of Jesus, All is well. Friend, if your soul has been healed by the wounds of Jesus, all is well. All is well. <laughs>